ours is a time of tremendous spirituality. Uh, it's true that according to Barna, less than 2% of the population in New England attends an evangelical church. That's true. It's true that the number of Americans who identify with no religion at all, the nuns, as you may have heard them called, are on the rise. It is also true that we live in a time where many describe themselves as spiritual but not religious. It's really interesting. When you look at the Western world today, especially cultural epicenters like big cities, overall we're highly educated, culturally diverse, religiously pluralistic, morally permissive, spiritually interested people. Many in our world would say, I believe in God, but I'm just not religious. Many would say, I don't believe in God, but I am spiritual. Isn't that interesting? And isn't it the case that the spirituality that is popular today fits so well into our cultural moment? The spirituality popular today is a pluralistic spirituality. It's, it's an individually tailored spirituality. It's a morally permissive spirituality, not in any way dogmatic. Hey, you do you and I'll do me. As Christians, this leaves us scratching our head because it's so different from a biblical worldview. As Christians, this leaves us a little bit nervous because we're increasingly not fitting into culture's norms. As Christians, this leaves us with heavy hearts because we know this spirituality is not ultimately true. It's a, it's a shadow of what's real. It's just a, a whisper of the divine image in man that's just aching for the substance. You know what? The moment we find ourselves in today is strikingly similar to the moment the Corinthian church found themselves in some 2,000 years ago. Today we begin a new series on the book of Corinthians, and it's a book as applicable now as it was then. It is a book that you will find tremendously applicable to our cultural moment. It is a book that then and now answers the question, what is real spirituality? And how do we as Christians live in a way that honors and pleases God when we stick out like sore thumbs in the world of which we're a part? Would you open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians? Uh, You got the Gospels. If you're new to looking at the Bible, you got the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Then you got Acts. And then you got Romans. And then you got 1 Corinthians, you're right there. I'd also invite you to open up your bulletins. Uh, You'll notice there's an outline. On one side of the outline, it's the the sermon outline for this morning. That'll help you know where we're going. And on the other side, it's a more detailed of the outline of, it's a more detailed outline of the whole book. I'm not going to specifically spend time in that whole book outline, but it's more detailed there for you as you go home and reflect on the book moving forward. So let me just start with a little bit a background for you. Who wrote Corinthians? The Apostle Paul. 
When did he write it? Between AD 54 and 55. Now, this isn't the only letter Paul wrote to the Corinthians. We know of four. He wrote one letter before 1 Corinthians. Uh, we know that because in 5.9, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. So there was a letter before 1 Corinthians. He obviously wrote 1 Corinthians. He wrote a letter after 1 Corinthians, and we know that because in 2 Corinthians 2, he refers to a painful visit in Corinth that did not go well, after which he wrote them a tearful and severe letter. So we got a third. And then finally he wrote 2 Corinthians. So four letters, we have two. And who is this letter written to? Well, chapter 1, verse 2 removes the mystery to the church of God that is in Corinth. Now, you need to know a few things just about Corinth and the church, okay? The city was located in modern-day Greece. It was a Roman city strategically located near two ports, which it controlled. It was wealthy. It was well-to-do, being an economic hub. It was populated between 80 to 100,000 people. It was cosmopolitan. There was entertainment options galore, theater, athletics, other activities you'd expect to characterize a growing city. It was a city bustling with all kinds of cults and gods. Corinth, we find temples for Apollo, for Aphrodite, for Poseidon, for Demeter, for Isis, for Serapis. It was also a place where any kind of sin you wanted to was available not too far away. We know of, for instance, significant prostitution in Corinth. Basically, Corinth was like a London, was like a New York, was like an L.A., was like an Austin, Texas. Bustling, diverse, intellectual, pluralistic. And the church stuck out like a sore thumb. Since they were exclusively devoted to God, they stood out in this pluralistic climate, okay? Now, Corinth had categories for exclusive devotion to God. They had categories for exclusive devotion to God because they knew about the Jews. There was a synagogue in Corinth, but the Christians were clearly not Jews. They didn't observe the food laws. They didn't observe Sabbath. They didn't observe the circumcision. So the reality is nobody knew what to make of them. They didn't fit in the Jewish world. They didn't fit in the culture. They were really outsiders. Something else you should know, this church is made up largely of Gentile Christians. What that means is that they weren't raised in the church per se. So they didn't grow up hearing the law. They didn't grow up going to Awana on Friday nights. They didn't grow up reading the Psalms. They didn't grow up singing the songs. They grew up believing all sorts of things and doing all sorts of things. So just follow me. You got a church made up of largely first-generation Gentile Christians. They are out of step with almost every basic accepted societal and cultural norm. Do you know what that means? It means there's going to be a huge temptation to worldliness. Thinking like the world, living like the world. 
Huge temptation to worldliness. A, because that's just what they've come out of. That was their life. And, and B, because not conforming to society costs you something. And so there is pressure to compromise in thought and in deed. And this is going to help you make sense of some things that we're going to see as we go through Corinthians. Well, what prompted the letter? What was the occasion that led Paul to put pen to paper and send the email? Two things. I did just say send the email. I know. It's okay. Two things. Number one, he'd received reports about the state of the church. One eleven tells us Chloe's people updated him. 16.17 tells us Stephanus and Fortunus and Achaeus updated him too. So number one, he got reports. Number two, the Corinthians themselves had actually written him a letter. 7.1 says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So they wrote to him, and going on throughout the book, what you're going to see is evidence of him answering questions they've asked. Now concerning the brotherhood, I'm sorry, now concerning the betrothed, 7.25. Now concerning food offered to idols, 8.1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, 12.1. He's answering questions that they've written or situations that he's been updated on. So he'd gotten reports about the church. He'd gotten a letter from the church. And both of these things reveal several big issues. Numero uno, pride. The Corinthian church was a prideful bunch. Boasting in worldly wisdom. Puffed up in reference to one another. Arrogant despite open, heinous sin in the church. Self-promoting and selfish in their worship, in their corporate worship, and in the pursuit of the spiritual gifts. Pride. Two, conflict. The Corinthians were also at odds with one another. It has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you. One eleven. There is jealousy and strife among you. Three three. When one of you has a grievance against one another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? 6-1. When you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. 11-18. I could go on. Conflict. Pride and conflict. Third, worldliness. Pride, conflict, worldliness. The Corinthians, both in their thinking and their living, are reflecting more the values and the priorities and the sensibilities of the culture around them than they are the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is a dangerous and ungodly conformity to the thought and ethics of the world instead of a distinct and glorious difference from it. And all of this adds up to the need for Paul to take up his pen and write. Because his beloved Corinthian church, the church that he planted himself just four years ago in 51 AD, is giving way to a spirituality that is false. It is prideful. It is influenced by the wisdom of the world. It leads to ungodliness and division. And so he picks up his pen to correct them, to rebuke them, and to call them to his ways in Christ. Which leads me to the big idea of the book. If I were to boil down the book 
into one sentence. Here it is. Real spirituality is founded on the gospel of Jesus Christ, not the wisdom of this world. It shows itself in increasing humility, godliness, and love, not in conflict, worldliness, and pride. And it holds fast to the gospel. It clings to the gospel. So let's take just a minute and get a high-level feel for the contours of the book. Your outline is just going to help you here as we take a survey from 30,000 feet. The first nine verses of chapter 1 are an introduction. The first section begins in chapter 1, verse 10, and it runs through chapter 4, verse 21, and it's all about the gospel. Where do you find real spirituality? You find it in the gospel. Pick up in 110. Let me just read this for you. 110. I appeal to you, brothers. So he's going to start his opening exhortation right here. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized into my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So we have a division here over which Christian leader is the best. I follow this guy, I follow that guy. And this comes from the fact that in the Greco-Roman world, wisdom is judged by one's ability to orate, okay? Wisdom in the Greco-Roman world is evaluated, judged, defined by one's ability to make a stirring speech or a stirring presentation, and whoever is the most stirring is clearly the wisest, So what's happening is on the basis of the world's definition and evaluation of wisdom, the Corinthian Christians line up behind one guy or another and esteem that guy as the one they're going to follow. Paul, Apollos, Cephas. Paul says, guys, your definition and evaluation of wisdom is totally bogus. The gospel is where wisdom comes from. Pick back up in verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discerning of the discerning and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Can't you just see him arguing against their foolish thinking that whoever makes the best presentation is the wisest? He says, has God not made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. 
For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Oh, he's already beginning to humble them, isn't he? Correcting their worldly thinking with the truth. The truth that the world thinks is foolish and simplistic, but is actually real wisdom. Consider with me for just a second, brothers, sisters, non-Christian, consider with me for just a second the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is a God in heaven who made all things in us. We have rebelled against him, and we deserve his judgment. He would have been just to leave us in our sins and condemn us, but since he is not only just, but also merciful, he sent his son Jesus to obey his law, to die in our place, and to rise again. He promises forgiveness and eternal life to all who repent and believe in him, and he is coming back to judge those who refuse him and to save those who trust him. You need to hear me this morning. That is the essence of wisdom, knowledge, and truth. What is wisdom? What is knowledge? What is truth? Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, coming back again. That's it. It is a simple message, a foolish message according to many, but friends, the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. Which of course is a play on words, right? God isn't foolish. Paul's making a point. And so he's setting them straight and he's setting you straight and he's setting me straight. The foundation of everything is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he goes on in 3.1 through 4.21 to correct their thinking about gospel ministers. Specifically apostles. So they were thinking about them just all wrong, okay? Judging them by their oratory ability, Paul says, we are going to be judged based upon our fidelity to minister the gospel. Picking and choosing who they want to hear, and seemingly Paul is actually kind of slipping down on the list of likes that he gets after all of his social media posts. Paul asserts that his apostolic authority is what needs to be heeded, and he calls them to follow and imitate him because, not because he's, he's consumed with himself, but because he is ministering the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. Can't you see that he's just calling them back to the gospel? Somehow they're thinking about life has gotten off track because it's not rooted in the cross. It's not influenced primarily by the cross. They're showing evidence of building their lives on some foundation other than that of Jesus Christ and him crucified, and they think they're wise. But this is absolute foolishness. 
Real spirituality is found in the cross alone. And Paul is calling them back to the cross of Jesus Christ. So that's the first section, 110 through 421. In the second section, which is actually the biggest section of the book, just just size-wise, it runs from chapter 5 to chapter 14, we see the outworking of real spirituality. Now, we actually don't see it in how the Corinthians are actually living. (laughs) That's, That's the problem, okay? We see the outworking of it in what Paul calls the Corinthians to. What is the Christian life supposed to look like? First, righteousness. 5.1, it's, it's actually reported among you that there is sexual immorality among you of a kind that's not even tolerated among the pagans. And you are arrogant? Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this thing be removed from you. This passage is about the popular and uncomfortable reality of church discipline. And the truth undergirding church discipline is that Christ's church is to be characterized by righteousness. If one claims to be a Christian but lives in unrighteousness, he must be removed from the church. Righteousness. In 6, 1 through 11, Paul rips them for ungodly lawsuits. Brother goes to court against brother. Believers are wronging and defrauding one another. Paul says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Chapter 6, verse 9. And in 6, 12 through 20, Paul calls them to flee all sexual immorality. You are not your own, he says, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body, 6, 20. The Christian life, real spirituality, is characterized by righteousness. And it's also shown in living as you were called, 7, 1 through 7, 40. I debated on how to phrase this. I considered calling it contentment in your station in life. Maybe that would have been better. The big idea is some of the Corinthians were wondering if the fact that they'd become Christians meant they needed to to dramatically change their station in life. What they did, who they were married to, all of that stuff. Paul says, no. What you need to do, no matter what station in life you're in, married, single, circumcised, uncircumcised, bond, servant, or free, what you need to do, in any and all of them, is honor and glorify God in the life you're actually in. The heart of the passage is 717 and following. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the mark of his circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commands of God. Real spirituality is also characterized by preferring your brother's. That's 8.1 through 11.1. 8.1 through 11.1 actually covers a whole lot of topics. So how do you deal with food offered to idols? Do you eat it or do you not? That's chapter 8. Paul talks about his rights and his freedoms as an apostle. That's chapter 9. 10 is a warning about the dangers of idolatry. But the consistent thread in all of this 
is the importance of thinking first and foremost about the spiritual well-being of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Take the issue of food offered to idols. That's a big deal in Corinth, okay? Tons of food is offered up to idols. Can Christians eat that or is that sin? There's actually a lot to it. I want to welcome you uh, to come back and we'll consider this together. Uh, so we're going to cover it in time. But today the important point is at the end of the, deci- is that at the, end of the ball game, the decision comes down to whether or not your actions might lead your brother or sister into sin. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So the issue here is the spiritual well-being of your brothers and sisters in the end of the game. Take the issue of Paul's freedoms. Paul has the freedom to do all sorts of stuff, and all sorts of stuff that he doesn't end up doing. Do you know why he doesn't end up doing it? Because he doesn't want to hinder the progress of the gospel in the lives of those he's ministering to. If there's any way his freedom in Christ is going to hinder the reception of the gospel or the growth of the gospel, he is not going to make use of his freedom. That's how much he cares about the gospel. And that's how much he cares about others. And it's not just, oh, great for Paul. I'm glad he was so spiritual. No, Paul wants us to follow in his example. Take the issue of idolatry in chapter 10. First off, 10 is a massive warning. Beware, Christian, that you're actually not being led astray into ungodliness, thinking that this is a matter of freedom in Christ. Beware. That's that's a warning appropriate to the modern church as well. But then he makes clear that the way he lives is the way they should live too. 10.23, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Christian spirituality looks like building up your brother and sister, preferring your brother and sister. And the last thing real spirituality looks like is covered in chapters 11 through 14. And it looks like pursuing order, edification, and love in Christian worship. This section is actually all about the church gathered on Sunday morning. In the first half of 11, section on head coverings, we're going to see that this is about certain sisters in the church acting in a way that was defiant toward God's created order and authority structure. In the second half of 11, section on the Lord's Supper, we'll see that this is actually about partaking of the table in a way that was unloving, unkind, and disunifying. In 12 through 14, section on spiritual gifts, we're going to see that Paul's driving emphasis is that the purpose of all spiritual gifts, by the way, why are they called spiritual gifts? Because they're given by the Holy Spirit. The purpose of the spiritual gifts is the edification and upbuilding of the church. So spiritual gifts are not your opportunity to platform your spirituality. Spiritual gifts are your opportunity to love the church. And edify the church. 12.7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. 12.24. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. 
13.1, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. 14.1, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Why? The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Verse 5. 1426, what then, my brothers, when you come together, each has a hymn, each has a lesson, each has a revelation, a tongue, an an interpretation. Let all things be done for the building up. 1440, but let all things be done decently and in order. I, I trust you see the point. The big idea in 11 through 14 is real spirituality in corporate worship. And what we see is that it's about love, order, and edification. Well, that's the end of the main section of the book, but there's still one more massive chapter, 15. You know what it's about? It's about the gospel. Paul starts the book out with the gospel. This is the essence of wisdom. This is the foundation of wisdom. And he closes out the book with the gospel. This is what you've got to hold on to. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. I just want to pause and ask you to check in. If you're checked out, there it is again. The simplicity of the gospel. Jesus Christ crucified and risen. That simple message that we must believe cling to. But at the same time, we should go on and we should say, although it is simple, it is not simplistic. Paul himself goes on to defend the reasonability of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the certainty of the bodily resurrection at the end of the ages when he returns. This, Paul says, we must keep fixed in our minds the truth of the gospel, the reality of the resurrection, the certainty of his return, the eternal joy of those united to him. And he ends in 1550 and following, just listen. I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. Then when the perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. That's how Paul ends. 16 is a concluding chapter. It, it, it wraps up various details. But, but this, 15, it's, it's the end of the body and it's a fitting end to this book which is about real spirituality. 1, 10 through chapter 4 tells us real spirituality is founded on the gospel. This is wisdom. 4 through 11 shows us what it looks like. It looks like righteousness. Living as you were called. Preferring your brothers. Pursuing order and edification and love in corporate worship. And then chapter 16 says, hold on to it. It's going to be a great book. Let me just do something else. You got the basic lay of the land, how these chapters flow. Let me just highlight for you a few major themes in the book. So first off, one major theme is the centrality of the gospel. You see this obviously in how the book ends and how it or how it begins and how it ends. But as we go, you're going to see that it actually pulses through every chapter in the book revealing to us that the gospel is not merely what saves us, It informs every aspect of our lives. What do you have that you did not receive? If you then received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? 4.8. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover the Lamb, has been sacrificed. 5.7. For you are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. 6.20. I could keep going and I'll actually start next Sunday, but right now what I want you to know is that 1 Corinthians is going to help you see that the gospel is tied to every single aspect of the Christian life. Another major theme is the centrality of the church and the life of the Christian. So when Paul covers what real spirituality looks like in 5 through 14, did you notice it's the church life? So 5 is about church discipline. Six is about believers going to law against other believers in the church. Eight is about not making your brother stumble. Nine is about Paul's example. Ten is about doing everything to build up your brother. Eleven through fourteen is about what you do when you come together on Sunday morning. This is about the church. The Christian life is centered on the church. You know those t-shirts that like soccer kids and basketball kids wear say basketball's life Christians should have church that says church is life and if you think well isn't Jesus life yes but where does Jesus say we are, our lives are to be lived in the church church is life that's what Paul would want us to wear next the pervasiveness of pride boy pulsing through this letter is just the ever-present reality that we, not just the Corinthians, that we are a prideful bunch. Corinthians, thinking that the gospel maybe was just a little simple, began to 
build their lives upon a foundation and understanding of wisdom based upon not the wisdom of God, but the wisdom of this world. How prideful is that, that they kind of exalt themselves over the apostolic message, exalt themselves over the word of God, and, and, and begin to think of themselves as the arbiters of truth. Which, of course, then it doesn't surprise you that you begin to see conflict and trouble and, 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 and puffed up nature of things and selfish use of the gifts and acting in such a way as to cause offense and lead others into sin. It's just because the whole focus is me, 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 me. And that's pride. And so Paul wants our eyes off of ourselves. He wants our eyes on the gospel. And then he wants our eyes on our brothers and sisters. And he says, you are to be about their edification and upbuilding. So that's another theme, the pervasiveness of pride. One more, actually two more. One of them is the ever-present threat of worldliness. Brothers and sisters, we have to be mindful that the culture in which we swim is always impacting the way that we think, the way that we process information, the way that we interpret our lives, and the way that we live our lives. And if we are not self-consciously seeking to conform our thinking and our living according to the word of God, especially in a world that is increasingly letting go of a Judeo-Christian belief overall, and a world in which we are sticking out like sore thumbs, and sticking out like sore thumbs has a cost, in that world, if we do not self-consciously say, the Bible is going to determine how I think and the Bible is going to determine how I live, then friends, whether you claim Christ or not, the culture is going, to de- is going to form how you think and how you live. Worldliness is an ever-present reality that we cannot think ourselves not subject to. We are. And thus we must labor to be transformed, not conformed to this world, Romans 12.1, but transformed by the renewing of our mind that we may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The threat of worldliness is ever-present to the Corinthians and to us. And then finally, the goal of our lives. I can't help but to think that we may have been impacted by the world even more than we want to admit. And do you know why I say that? Because I think, whether we admit it or not, more often than not, what we're really living for is our own comfort, pleasure, ease, and preferences. But do you know what Paul says we really should be about? Doing all things to the glory of God, which looks like living in such a way as to where we are aching for Him to be known through our words and through our ways. Everything that we experience, we should not be interpreting through a lens 
of therapy. Does this make me happy? But through a lens of does this glorify God and how is he transforming me into his image and how does he intend for me to proclaim and display the gospel to a lost and dying world? I do all things, Paul says, to give no offense to the Jews, the Gentiles, or the church of God that they may be saved. Is that your heart? Or is that not you at all? Or maybe some. For most of us, me included, it's some. I want it to be all. Paul wants it to be all. Jesus wants it to be all. Because he's worth it. The goal of our lives is not ourselves. But for Jesus Christ to be magnified. Through our lives. Oh, we need to hear that word. We need to hear it again and again and again. Because again and again and again, we turn in on ourselves. 1 Corinthians is going to be a glorious book. I say it because it's going to be a book that turns our eyes off of ourselves onto the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And on to his glory and grace, which he has poured out upon us and calls us to build our lives and our thought upon so that he might be magnified, so that others might be saved, so the church might be built up. And can I say to you that that is where real joy is found. And so to a word for any who are outside of Christ, let me tell you, are you looking for real spirituality? It's found in the gospel. This, Jesus Christ and him crucified, you forgiven for your sins and reconciled to him for all eternity is the sum and substance of real spirituality. And I want to invite you to it and say it can be yours today, offered to all who repent and believe in the gospel. Would you have real spirituality? It's yours free for the taking. I encourage you to take it. If you have any questions about what that means, I would love to talk to you. Any one of our elders would love to talk to you. Any one of the members of Redeeming Grace would love to talk to you. After church, over lunch, invite yourself over. Is that forward? Yes, it is. Are we New Englanders? Do we not do that? No, we don't, but we should because we're Christians. So just invite yourself over. Let's pray and ask for God's grace.